Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of Blade Homers and Podcast, part of Crimson and Cream Machine on the SB Nation network of podcasts. As always, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. In light of everything going on right now with the coronavirus, I wanted to invite a couple epidemiologists on to discuss what it's going to really actually take to get college football back uh, in the fall or perhaps later uh, in the winter-spring seasons. I've asked Zach Benny. Uh, sports injury epidemiologist with Emory University, and Matt Fox, infectious disease epidemiologist with at Boston University, to come on to talk a little bit more about uh, you know what things are going to look like going forward and and what kind of steps are necessary to be taken to uh, actually have a college football season. So let's go ahead and welcome them on. Zach, Matt, how are you guys doing? Doing well. Yeah, great, Alan. How are you? Oh, doing really well. Thank you. So let me start off first. Uh, if you guys could maybe just give us a little bit about, uh, you know, your fields of study and specialization. Why don't we start with you, Zach? What, uh, what is it that you, uh, you know, ha- and, uh, specialize in and how did you kind of come to uh, this topic, you know, sports and um, what's going on uh, in the sports world right now? Yeah, so I'm an epidemiologist. Uh, my area of focus is sports injuries and athlete health. Uh, how I came to that is uh, I actually used to study palliative and end-of-life care, but I got very lucky with a freelance statistics gig with the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, a number of years ago, and uh, that really got me into sports injuries, and that's been what I've been studying ever since. So how I got to this is, I mean, COVID-19 happened, and uh, I thought that it was my duty. My expertise is not infectious disease, and I think it is really important to stay in your lane, but as someone who knows public health and epidemiology and also knows sports. Um, I try to serve to kind of, uh, I, I, to kind of bridge the gap uh, between the two worlds alongside uh, true infectious disease experts like my colleague, Dr. Fox. That's right. Matt, uh, how about you? Can you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist at Boston University. Uh, I do a lot of work in, in HIV, largely in, in sub-Saharan Africa, focusing on South Africa, but uh, also have spent a, a fair bit of time studying pneumonia in uh, in resource limited settings, and came to COVID the same way you know most of us did, which is that when this appeared on the scene, it was uh, something that it was kind of an all hands on deck situation, and anybody who had the uh, ability to be able to take all of the information that's coming out, you know, as such rapid fire and take a look at, you know, what's the quality of the evidence and try to find ways to communicate it to the general public um, was really called upon. And so, um, you know, I I think Zach made a really interesting point about, you know, staying in your lane. But when it comes to something like this, I think so many of us have have skills that 
we need to we need to bring to bear to this problem, even if we don't study, you know, coronavirus specifically. Agree, one hundred percent. Right. Well, it's it's such a great service you guys are uh, providing, and you know, uh, I wanted to bring you guys on actually because uh, Zach had a post, uh, you know, on a blog uh, probably a couple of weeks back about you know kind of what uh, sports fans need to know about what's going on here. That uh, you know, I posted, and uh, I mean, so many people got back to me talking about what a great resource it was for them. So I'm really uh, happy to have you guys on today. So let's um, talk first of all just about maybe looking at the sports world. Um, I, I mean, you know, I think everybody kind of knows, uh, in terms of steps we should be taking societally, you know, uh, more hand washing, social distancing, that type of thing. Um, but I guess in terms of, uh, you know, the importance maybe of that for the sports world, I mean, can you guys speak to that at all? Yeah, I can, I can take that a little bit. I mean, I, I think that all of the measures that we've been taking so far to try and flatten the curve, in other words, to, to slow the spread of disease so that the healthcare system doesn't become overwhelmed, become particularly important when you start thinking about the, the world of sports, because you, you've sort of got two aspects of it. One is you've got people who are uh, engaging in, in activities in which they're going to be in close contact, so the, the actual athletes themselves who um, anytime you're, you know, you're in close contact like that, you're, uh, you're increasing your risk for transmission. But then you're also talking about the, the fans who desperately want to come and, and see these games. But then you're going to have, you know, packed stadiums of, of people full of, of crowded areas where even if you try to think about ways to, to distance people within stadiums, you're always going to have the entry and exit points and, and bathrooms and, and areas where people are going to congregate where they can't really distance themselves as much as they, they probably would need to. And so if you're going to, you're going to start to think about ways to um, bring people back into sports, you're going to have to get really, really creative. And I don't, I don't know what all the answers are, but I, I do think that if we don't, uh, if we are going to have live sports sometime, you know, in the not too distant future, um, we're going to have to think very carefully about how to do it because these these uh, large scale congregations of people are are places where we could expect a lot of transmission to start occurring. Yeah, I think sports is unique among you know workplaces if you want to think of it that way. They're unique in a few ways. Uh, two of the ways uh, Matt mentioned, one would be that it forces a lot of close contact uh, between <clears throat> between folks who are in the workplace, between players, between coaches and players on the bench. Um, and then the fact that you've also got a ton of people, if you're having fans, a whole lot of people getting together uh, in the same place that really ratchets up the danger of a large scale spreading event. <clears throat> that can overwhelm a local public health system and eventually a local medical system. The other somewhat unique thing about uh, professional sports and, and high-level college sports is that there's a lot of travel involved. So you're bringing folks in, say, uh, you know, if you're talking about Major League Baseball and you're trying to hold sort of a normal season, which is not what anybody's talking about, mm -hmm. 
you're crisscrossing the country, you could be moving outbreaks from one area to another, you could be seeding outbreaks in a bunch of different areas at once. If you have a bunch of people coming in for a single sporting event, like a World Series game or something like that, coming in from out of town, and then they go directly home, you can seed potentially a whole bunch of outbreaks that way. So there's a lot of really unique challenges uh, that you deal with specifically uh, in sports, and it just ratchets up the importance of uh, what we're asking everybody else to do in broader society. And if I could, if I could just add to that, I, those are such important points. I mean, if you look at where the majority of cases are in the United States right now, you know, the epidemic is is centered in a, in a bunch of different, uh, largely in cities, typically in the the Northeast, but also in in Michigan and in Florida and in uh, uh, some of the southern states, and um, is affecting the the some of the rural areas less so at the moment. But if you start to have large scale events where you start to mix people up exactly in the way that, that Zach was describing, you have the potential to start seeding new epidemics in these uh, uh, areas where you're currently not seeing large outbreaks. And, and that could be potentially disastrous. Right. I mean, you know, with college, college football, for example, you might have, you know, state to state, you have different hotspots. And then on top of that, I've got to assume universities would kind of be seen as, as kind of a breeding ground if you've got students on campus, right, for something like this, if I had to guess, right? Universities are really, really worried about this, even outside, obviously outside of the, the sporting world, because, you know, you're going to have students living in, in dormitories closely packed together, um, you know, Younger people don't appear to be a, uh, a, a, at high risk for the severe consequences, but that doesn't mean they can't transmit it. And so if you've got people all coming together, living in close quarters, you know, it would be fairly easy to, to, to start an outbreak. And then if you get people moving around from state to state, it's going gonna, it's gonna to obviously increase the rate of transmission. Right. So I guess, you know, looking ahead, you know, people are already kind of, you know, going there with, uh, you know, states right now talking about, quote, unquote, open, reopening the economy. Um, you know, th that has kind of a loose definition, I think. But I think that, uh, you know, from what I've seen, any kind of strategy going forward to do this successfully, uh, both in the sports world and just in general, would involve uh, test and trace. Um, can you guys describe, you know, just kind of set a baseline for what test and trace really means? Yeah, I can, I can take that one. So um, if, if, if we're going to think about how to reopen the economy in, in a way that is as, as safe as we can make it, which obviously is, is not, never going to be a perfect system, then the key to that is going to be a, a massive scaling up of the amount of testing for, for coronavirus that we can do. And then what we need is, is a, a large number of people who are employed to identify those people who test positive and then to um, get in touch with those people and try to get a list of all of the people that they have been in contact with to try to contact those people so that those people can, in addition to the person who's sick, can also isolate so that we try and, and reduce the amount of transmission. But that's a, that's a really difficult thing to do when you're at the number of cases that we're at right now. So the whole idea of, of shutting things down now is to try to bring things down to a, a manageable number at which the, the tracing programs start to have a bigger, bigger impact on, on what we can do. It's going to be a really, really challenging thing to do. And I do think we need to also get creative here and start to think about technological approaches to, to contact tracing. So, 
you know, apps that can be used to identify places that people have been. Obviously, there are huge privacy concerns that people have, um, but I think those are hurdles we're going to have to get over if we're going to have uh, a functioning economy again. I mean, just with tracing, I've got to think we're, you're talking about uh, literally hundreds of thousands of jobs, right? You are. And, you know, I, I mean, with the with the economy being closed, obviously, that's a that's one area where you could start to to try to employ people. Um, you know, people are thinking about whether there's any way to link this up with the, the census that's that's starting up. Um, and whether you could uh, employ people to be doing both of those jobs at once. Um, there are concerns there, of course, around privacy as well. So it may not be the ideal way to go about it. But but um, if we're going to do this, we are going to need a large number of people. And at a time when the economy is hurting, you know, having more jobs available is obviously going to be a good thing. Right. And just to get a little more general for a minute, <clears throat> I, I this is just my sense, but I get the sense that part of the push to quote unquote reopen, which is a bit of a false dichotomy really, because even if you allow businesses to open like we are here in Georgia, I personally know a lot of business owners who have declined to reopen, uh, even though they know that they can, uh, even those businesses that have reopened, uh, a lot of people are electing to stay away and they can't uh, employ as many people uh, as they normally would or even necessarily cover their operating costs, especially if you're restricting their capacity. So really our goal is not just reopen the reopen things and hope that nothing bad happens. We need a comprehensive plan that involves government support of people and businesses until we can really get the epidemic down to a manageable level uh, with test, trace, isolate, and we can get back on our feet. And then we need to have a more centralized, aggressive, clear plan for how we're going to get to test, trace, isolate. How are we going to get the tests? How are we going to hire the contact tracers? Where is the money for that coming from? Right now, we seem to sort of be relying on each individual state to do that. And a virus doesn't care about state borders. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. All it wants to do is get into your cells and make copies of itself. That's it, insofar as a virus can want anything. So you need to have this more centralized solution. And I think that the sense that we're lacking that and the sense that there's a clear path forward is really helping to ferment a lot of frustration among people and rightly so that well you're just asking us to stay at home forever and ever and we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and i understand that mm. and i can't magically make a plan appear but i share your frustration as an epidemiologist and i hope and trust uh that it will get better and i i just have to ask for people's continued patience including in the sports world yeah, and I, I, I would just add to that. I mean, I, I second all those points so much. And, and to bring it back to, to sports, you know, this, this idea that Zach brings up that if you, you, could, you can open up businesses, but that doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to come because people are concerned about transmission. And, you know, if you start to think about opening up sports stadiums, uh, even if you could do it, even if you thought it was a reasonable idea and you had a good plan for how to do it, it's not entirely clear to me how many people would really turn out knowing that they would be putting themselves at, at risk. Obviously, people love sports and, and so, you know, some would, but it isn't clear to me how many would. And there are creative solutions, you know, 
Matt, you talked about needing to find creative solutions earlier. Uh, one that I've loved uh, from a soccer club in Germany, uh, I'm forgetting which one, I think it was one in, uh, in Bavaria, but I don't remember. Uh, but they were, I believe, selling the opportunity for fans to buy cardboard cutouts of themselves that they would place in the stadium. So if they do return to games, you're there, right? Hey, there's a revenue stream yeah. for teams that doesn't impact public health. I love that creative thinking and those sorts of ideas. That's what we're going to need to help teams uh, stay on their feet uh, while protecting public health. I just thought that was such a great idea. Mm, that's great. Well, so, I mean, in terms of just scale of, of testing, I mean, what are we talking about here? I, you know, it, it seems to me like really people won't necessarily have a lot of um, confidence in, in the testing system until it's something that would be akin to, I don't know, for, for lack of a better, you know, a, a pregnancy test or something like that, right? I mean, something that's really simple that can be done really quickly uh, and give you pretty quick results. But I mean, short of something like that, I mean, what kind of scale are we looking at here? Millions. We're talking about millions of tests. So I think the 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 U.S. has done uh, about five and a half million total tests at this point. Um, you know, we need to be on the scale of be do, being doing millions of tests per day if we're going to get to the point where we can actively identify where outbreaks are occurring and then be able to respond to them in a timely manner. And you know, I'm sure your your listeners are, are probably aware at this point, but there are there are different kinds of tests that we're talking about here. So there are what are called PCR tests, and those are tests that we're doing in large scale right now, which are looking for the virus in in the the in the nose, and uh, that's a sign that you have an active infection. Um, those tests exist, but those are they take a bit of time, and they're they're uh, an indication of current infection. The other type of tests that we don't currently have a ton of, and they are under development, but it's 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 slow in coming, are the antibody tests. Those are the tests that determine that you have previously been effective and we hope have some uh, indication that you have some immunity towards being reinfected. Um, we could talk about the issue of reinfection, but um, those tests don't currently exist in, in large scale. There's a lot of them and they are, uh, some of them are very good. Some of them are not very good. So we have a ways to go before we get to that point. But if you had um, a good indication that somebody was, was immune, they had antibodies, then th those people can kind of go back to more normal activities. And then you can start to think about um, prioritizing, you know, what, what industries we need to reopen and, and who, can, who can do that. Yeah, but that's difficult as well, right? Because Very. you've got high variability in the quality of the tests mm -hmm. and also, uh, you know, even tests that are very, very good uh, aren't perfect. And so you've got the risk of uh, an appreciable number of what we would call false positives, which was which with an antibody test, especially in areas where uh, having the disease is still relatively rare, you know, maybe four or 5% of people have had the disease you can get a lot of false positives, which is the test saying you have antibodies when you don't, uh, then there's the risk of sending those people out into the world with a false sense of security. And if you do that in numbers that are too high, uh, then it, you, know, you run the risk of, of allowing a lot of people to still get sick. So that won't necessarily happen. And even imperfect antibody tests are still uh, you know, probably better uh, than none as long as they're... <laughs> Like some of the ones that we've seen are so bad that it's mm. worse to use them than not. But there are several out there that even though they're imperfect are better to use than nothing. 
as long as you have somebody helping you understand and interpret what the test does and does not mean for you. And hopefully you act accordingly. I would, I would, I would agree with all of that. And, and, you know, if, if the, if the options are to reopen the, the economy without antibody testing and just let everybody back into the economy and use a, a good, but not perfect test, then obviously you want the, the good, but not perfect test, but you do have to be really careful about this because you will be sending some people back thinking that they are immune when they aren't. Um, the other, the other point that you raised was, was, you know, you're talking about the sort of pregnancy type test and those are actually in, in the works. They, they are um, uh, blood tests. So they do require a bit of a finger prick, but you can do them at home. Um, but again, when if those tests, um, you know, if if antibody tests in general have some problems, then when you get into a, a home-based test, um, the user error starts to go up because you're asking somebody to then, you know, do a finger prick themselves. So we just have to to make sure we have good quality control on these things before they they come into widespread use. Just to confirm that those finger prick blood tests, at home tests that you're talking about, those would be diagnostic tests, right? Or yeah. are you talking still? Okay, yeah. Cool. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. So let's maybe talk just quickly about the mechanics of this. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I'm a athletic director and I say, okay, we need to test our players at point X or do it, you know, at this time, how do we kind of take, carry out the testing so that I know, okay, I can send this player out on the field with a relative degree of confidence that uh, he's, he hasn't been exposed. Yeah, this is, this is a really complicated thing and it's, it's going to be a a fluid situation because things are going to change as more and more people get infected. But I I mean, ideally you're going to have to do um, testing on players in, you know, in successive, you know, in, 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 uh, uh, more than one um, over time because you're going to have to, you know, continually check that people are not positive. And then, um, but then the question becomes, if you have one player who is test positive, the chances are that the rest of the team has now been exposed. Do we then have to, to shut down the, the, you know, all sporting activities at that point? Um, you know, Prudence would probably say you do at that point. Um, but um you know, so there, I don't think there's a there's an easy answer to this one, but you're going to have to do serial testing of players. Um, you know, possibly on a weekly basis, possibly um, you know some other scheduling, but such that you have reasonable confidence that you're not sending sending players out to to practice or play with infection. Yeah, this is one of the things that I repeat over and over again, but everything that you can do to bring sports back. It's not like you do this biodome or you do nothing, or there's only two choices that you have yes or no. It's this continuum of infection control choices that you can make each one of which has a cost and has a benefit. It has an economic logistical or psychological cost, uh, but it also decreases the chance that uh, you have an infection on your team and that that infection spreads either within your team or outside 
uh, of your team to the general public. Um, in terms of testing, I think there's, or there at least were at the start, some misconceptions, especially when uh, leagues started coming out with their biodome type plans where the theory was, okay, like the whole NBA gathers in Vegas and we test everybody who comes uh, right before they enter the biodome and they're negative and okay, you're done. But there's a few problems with that. So let's track the timeline of becoming infected with COVID-19. Let's say just one viral particle gets up your nose and inhaled into your lungs and sparks an infection. <clears throat> you won't immediately test positive, nor will you immediately be contagious because the virus has to take time to multiply uh, to get enough copies of itself to actually show up on a test uh, or for you to do what we would call shed, which is basically expel the virus in large enough quantities to uh, be contagious to other people, it takes time to get to those stages. One thing that we don't quite understand is the length of time that it takes to get to each of those points, the length of time from initial infection to when you test positive and the length of time from the initial infection to when you become contagious to other folks. We do know that you can be contagious before you show symptoms, but we don't know the other sort of relative time points along that axis. So how often would you have to test your players to be sure that uh, not only are they testing negative now, but they're not going to develop an infection? That's the, the complication that's added, because even if they test negative today, it's possible that two, four, seven days down the line, they would test positive because they already had an infection. So if that gap between the tests that you do is too big, you would still have the risk of a case getting in and spreading. So and it's tricky. And you do you do have the same issue that we talked about before with the, the fact that the tests are not perfect. So if you've got um, false uh, false negatives, so you've got people who are truly infected, but uh, you tell them they're fine because you couldn't, you know, you did the, the, the swab wrong or you couldn't just get enough uh, uh, particles to, to be able to detect it, then you you run the risk of, again, seeding a, a, a new outbreak within a, a sporting facility that um, you know, is going to probably require you to shut everything down. Yeah. I mean, the only way that you could really avoid an infection getting in and be you know near 100% certain that somebody isn't getting in is for uh, somebody either individually or in a small group to be completely quarantined with no human contact outside that group for two weeks and then they test negative, probably multiple days in a row to make sure that you're not getting a false negative. But that's a multi-week process for somebody to even enter a biosecure area that they then can't leave without going through that two-week process again. So, you know, the, the, the task of doing that safely uh, is really difficult and is why I, why I think sports in order to return needs to focus more on getting to the point where you can do something a little bit softer than that and still have a low risk of somebody getting in. And the key to that is going to be to have a much lower number uh, of active cases in the population than we do right now and to have enough testing to be able to get an actual accurate number of the folks uh, who are infected and where they are and be able to track, uh, you know, a large fraction uh, of those folks. And we're, we're simply not there yet. And I also think you're going to have to, you're going to have to do a fair bit of, of planning around what you're going to do if there is an infection. So if you get right. one person sick on your team, you're going to have to, you, you, 
potentially shut the the entire uh, team down. Uh, what happens to the the you know games you were supposed to play at that point? So there's just going to have to be a lot of planning that goes into place. And then, of course, how are you going to care for all these people who are now sick, who have uh, or have have a need to quarantine? So it's just it's it's a logistical uh, challenge that's really going to have to be thought through. Yeah, if you're testing frequently enough, you know, maybe there would be an argument in concert with public health officials for, okay, somebody tests positive, but you've been testing them every two days. They probably haven't had a lot of time to spread the virus to others. Okay, maybe you just isolate that person and then maybe you start daily testing for the next, you know, week or so. Uh, and if a second or a third case pops up, then you shut it all down. You know, there's a whole continuum of choices that you could make. But my main message to any team considering that would be be discussing that with your medical and infection control and local public health personnel and absolutely do have a plan in place, whatever that plan is. Yes. Have a plan. Yep. Do you see this, guys? Uh, guys, do you see this as being a, a seasonal virus? I mean, are you expecting a second wave in the fall or winter? I absolutely expecting a, a second wave. I mean, the the issues around seasonality is that um, we there are certainly viruses that we know have large seasonal patterns, um, flu being one of them. But um, there isn't great. We don't we don't know yet what's going to happen uh, with the coronavirus because we have no experience with it yet. But we do know that the virus has certainly been circulating in in climates that are much warmer than uh, the United States or or China. Uh, And therefore, we have every reason to believe it can continue to circulate in in warmer weather might be less efficient uh, because there is some evidence that that increased temperature and humidity reduces the the transmission but but it certainly could continue and when you have a um a, a virus that is new like this you have so many people who are susceptible um that because no one has experienced this before there's just such a uh, a, a large reservoir of people who can contain and 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 propagate the the spread that it seems it seems really unlikely that there won't be a second wave once we make decisions around coming out of of lockdowns. And obviously that's another thing we just have to to prepare for, plan for, and make some decisions around how we're going to handle that. Yeah, I'm a football guy. So I'll jump in here with a, a football metaphor, um, which is that it, as Matt said, the weather, you know, warmer weather, higher humidity will hopefully make it a little more difficult for the virus to spread, but we do still see it spreading uh, in those sorts of climates. So it's kind of like if the virus is a quarterback and he's trying to get the ball out to spread it to one of his receivers, then the weather is kind of like a hotter, more humid summer weather is kind of like adding a defensive lineman crashing the pocket. Okay. So if you've, if you're not doing any social distancing, uh, if you're kind of taking a really loosey goosey approach and you're not having anybody rushing the quarterback to try to shut him down, the weather will add one guy. But that quarterback can still roll out of the pocket and get the ball downfield, right? Okay, it was a little harder for him, but he's still going to be able to do it. Whereas if you are taking steps to contain the virus and you've already got, you know, three defensive linemen crashing through uh, down on the quarterback and the weather adds a fourth, that does help uh, a lot. It shuts off another uh, potential escape valve uh, for the quarterback who is the virus uh, in this example. So. It can help some, 
but I don't think that a lot of people are saying, you know, we can rely on this. And if the virus comes back, um, it's probably going to be due at least in part to our uh, choices as a society and as people rather than just the weather. So I guess then let's say there is a second outbreak or a second wave in the fall or winter. Uh, at that point, is it back to shut down sports again? Is that, I mean, you know, that, that, cause I know that uh, one idea that's kind of been bandied about is, you know, for college football, at least is playing the season in the spring. You know, well, if you know, another outbreak occurs starting in January or February, what happens then? Yeah, I don't, give a lot of credence to that idea just because I find it difficult to envision a lot of scenarios where things look better in say January or February of 2021 than they do in August, in this August of 2020. Um, you know, I don't know if, if Matt would agree with that. Uh, what do you think? No, I do. I mean, the, the, the one thing that will be different by then is that you'll have a lot more people infected and so you'll start to see see the rate of infection coming down naturally just because there are fewer and fewer people to infect. But that's going to be very regional. So a place like New York, you know, New York City, where they're already estimating there could be, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of people are already infected. Well, at some point, the, the number of cases in, in New York is going to start to come down naturally just because there are few and free, fewer people to infect. But then you're going to have places where there haven't been much in the way of infections at all that are suddenly going to start to see larger uh, outbreaks. And, you know, the, the idea that um, this would just kind of uh, trail off uh, just because, uh, you know, we've, we've had some time with it is seems pretty unlikely. Uh, it may slow down, but it, it doesn't seem like it's going to go away until we really have uh, a vaccine or, or good therapeutics and contact tracing and ability to isolate. Yeah, and it trailing off initially sounds like a good thing, right? But it probably also means that we failed. That means we let the virus spread further than we meant it to, and uh, and probably a lot of people are dead. Maybe we get super lucky and let it spread at just the right level, but that's really, really hard. Uh, Dr. Carl Bergstrom at the University of Washington refers to it as kind of trying to roll a ball down a really narrow ridge it's really easy for that ball to fall off uh, to one side or the other. It's really hard to keep infections at like an exact steady level. That's, that's, that's really rolling the dice. And so hopefully we decide to take uh, a little bit of a, a safer route uh, than that. But yeah, as far as, you know, if we do see a seasonal peak, that's probably going to start when Matt, like late October, November, maybe, and it'll probably still be continuing through January or February. So pushing the college football season just back to spring semester, you know, one of the tricky things about college football and college sports in general is they have to take place in the context of a college, mm -hmm. right? So if you're asking me to guess what's the most likely thing for colleges this year, I would think that it's probably more likely to start fall semester and then have to go home because we have another peak rather than not going through the rest of the year and then restarting in January when if there is a seasonal peak, we might still be in the middle of it. You know, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but if you're asking me to guess, that's kind of what makes sense to me. 
Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me too. I mean, you, you, what you're, what you're talking about is bringing uh, all of these college students back together in the fall. Inevitably, there's going to be, you know, some who are infected that it's going to start to, to spread on college campuses. Again, I, you know, the hope is that that is unlikely to produce a lot of serious, uh, serious illness, but it does mean that you're going to have um, seeding of these outbreaks in, in areas where they're, you know, they're, they're, previously have been, you know, nobody on campus, that's going to mix really well. And it's just going to start to spread throughout those, those college uh, campuses. Eventually it's going to, it's obviously it's going to hit sports. So, uh, you know, one thing that I think people are interested in is also kind of, you know, immunities or, um, you know, reinfections. I mean, you know, if you've gotten this already, if you've had it, if you have it, will you be immune to it going forward? Yeah, unfortunately, the answer to that is we still don't know. We're waiting for more data on this one. Um, most people who I talk to who are uh, immunologists or infectious disease doctors say that everything we know about previous coronaviruses suggests that there should be a period of time during which a person is uh, immune. That might be a period of, of months, could be, could be longer. But we don't have the evidence yet to support that. There are certainly some anecdotal evidence of people being reinfected, um, but it's you know it's very hard to know if those people were truly reinfected or they just had a false negative test and then uh, a correct positive test again, and they just hadn't cleared the virus yet. So it's with with the tools we have available to us at the moment and the data we have available to, to us at the moment, no one can say for sure. There is certainly hope but no one, no one can say for sure yet. And then I guess, you know, kind of closing up here for fans uh, or people in general, do you guys have any advice just, you know, in terms of getting involved or, uh, you know, kind of solutions that they can be, you know, kind of uh, pressing for what they can do in their own personal lives, especially if they want to see football in the fall Uh, just in general, any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, putting my coach hat on, uh, I would say that that we all have a part to play. And it's easy to feel like you're powerless. You know, you're staying at home. You can't influence national level policy by snapping your finger or something like that. Um, It can feel really frustrating. But by staying at home, by minimizing your contacts with other folks, you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. We're part of a team out there. You don't, you know, if you're a coach, you've got a system that you're trying to run. The last thing you want is a guy out there freelancing on you, right? Don't go freelancing. Please listen to your coaches, listen to local public health officials, uh, do what they are asking you to do because these methods that we're trying to employ are tried and true. We've known them for decades, but it requires a lot of public faith and a lot of public cooperation requires you to buy into the system. We need buy-in of everybody and the more that we buy in and the more that we do right now to contain the virus and the more proactively we act moving forward to continue containing it such as through test trace and isolate systems uh, the more likely we are not only to get sports back quicker uh, but also to not lose them again once they get back Uh, to borrow the absolute most infuriating phrase in all of sports for many people trust the process (laughs) We are in the process here, and I know it hurts, but we're asking people to tank. We're in the tanking period right now where we have to stay home. It hurts, but the idea is to kind of 
get that out of the way uh, as quickly as we can, rather than just taking half-hearted steps and trying to sort of maintain mediocrity and go, you know, eight and eight every year uh, for the next decade. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to have one bad period and then have a plan in place to rebuild. That's test, trace, isolate once we get out of the teardown. That's kind of a lockdown. And then the goal is for that to eventually bridge us over to a championship, which would be a vaccine. So that's the goal. There is a goal. There is a plan. I know oftentimes it, it doesn't seem like it. And, you know, it hasn't been communicated and executed as well as it could have to this point. But there's still the opportunity to execute it. And we just need people, including sports fans, to buy in. Believe me, you will not find an epidemiologist uh, I think more eager to have sports back than me, especially football. I love football. I'm more of an NFL guy than college, but I love football. I want it back and I'm doing my part to bring it back. And I just ask everyone else uh, to do the same. Yeah, I, I, I share those feelings, including the, the just desperately missing sports. I, uh, I rewatched the 1984 uh, NBA championships last week. <laughs> I was that desperate. Um, I, I, I just I think it's really important to acknowledge that what your government and what your the public health professionals are asking you to do is difficult. We are asking people to do something incredibly challenging. It's been devastating to the economy and we are very aware that the consequences of this are really really dire. But the the idea that we would um, go through this process of trying to suppress the virus to a place at which we could manage it, and then because it's difficult, we we then just abandon the process, as, as you say, Zach, um, means we get the worst of both worlds. We would get all of the pain from the, the shutting down the economy and all of the pain from the virus. So we're in the middle of this, and we've got to just push our way forward because what's very hard, I think the hardest thing for people to understand is that if we, you know, abandon things now, if we loosen things too early, um, the, the second wave that's going to come is going to be quite severe. And it's going to lead to people scrambling for additional uh, policies that people aren't going to trust. So do we do a second lockdown? Uh, do we, do we, you know, ask people to um, engage in severe social distancing, but we open up some, you know, some workplaces, it's going to make the challenges even worse. So I think that the best thing that people can do is, is stay at home now, um, isolate and, and, you know, hope that, um, uh, we get a little bit of a break with the weather and things like that um, to reduce the spread a bit. But really what we're asking people to do is just to stay home. It, it is difficult. It's incredibly difficult. I acknowledge and, uh, and want to emphasize all of that. But we're asking, we're asking people to be team first guys here. Everybody loves a team first guy, right? Nobody wants, nobody wants a diva who's out there on the field just playing for his own stats or something like that. And, you know, we've always lived in a society and we've always been part of a team. But I think in particular, a pandemic of an infectious disease really reinforces that and throws it into really sharp relief and makes it really clear how interdependent we are on one another, whether we whether we like that idea or not, it just, it's the reality. And we're all on a team together. And I think that's really clear. And, uh, and we all got to be team first guys right now. And, and that's all there is to it. 
All right. Well, um, guys, if there's anywhere that you guys are, you know, best way for people to kind of follow, you know, what it is that you're working on or, you know, get in contact with you guys, what would be the best ways to, to do that? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at ZBinney, B-I-N-N-E-Y, underscore NFL I-N-J uh, for NFL injuries. It's not the easiest Twitter handle to remember, <laughs> but even more than me, I would recommend that folks uh, follow uh, a lot of infectious disease uh, experts. Uh, a really great place to start is a list maintained by Eleanor Murray. Uh, she is at Epi, E-P-I, L-E-E-L-L-I-E. She has a whole Twitter list uh, that's just of amazing uh, resources of a really diverse group of folks uh, who can provide really solid uh, information about COVID-19 because there's a lot of bad information out there, a lot of misinformation. Uh, but this is a list of people who will provide really solid stuff. And if you're looking for particular news outlets that have done a really good job, uh, The Atlantic Magazine, I think their coverage has been really clear and just absolutely outstanding arguably uh, the best in the country. Um, and then I would also recommend a resource called STAT, S-T-A-T News, uh, that has really, really good uh, and up-to-date information. Yeah, I, I second all of those. I think there are a number of Twitter lists that are great to follow, but but I would st certainly start with Ellie Murray's. Um, you can find me at, at Prof Matt Fox. And uh, the only other additional source, I would say that the um, both the New York Times and the Washington Post have had some really nice visualizations of some of the, the data around COVID that really um, both uh, for just sort of descriptive showing you how many cases there have been in testing and where cases are, but also in sort of explaining how viruses transmit through populations. So those are, are worth, uh, worth a look. Yeah, and the only reason I didn't plug Matt's uh, Twitter handle is because I knew he was going to do it himself, but he <laughs> is uh, an excellent follow, so I could not recommend that more highly. Thank you. All right. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much. And, and you know, you guys are part of a community that I think is doing such good work in terms of informing the public, uh, coming up with, you know, uh, kind of just real world uh, explanations that are, are so helpful to all of us. So thank you guys so much. And, and really, thank you guys so much for coming on with me this morning. Thanks for having us. Well, I really appreciate you, Alan, because getting this information out to like college football fans, that's, that's a really important group of folks to get it out to. So you may think we're doing good work, but it's right back at you, man. Second Thanks a that. lot. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, fellas. All right. Well, you guys take care. All right. Take care. Stay you safe. Too. All right. Thanks again to uh, Zach Benny of Emory University, as well as Matt Fox of Boston University for coming on to talk with us a little bit about uh, college football in the era of the coronavirus. Uh, thanks to you all for joining us, too. And again, please make sure to uh, rate, review, subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. For the Blayton Homers and Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.